Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jamie Ward, Fund Manager of the Crux UK Core Fund. Jamie has more than 12 years of experience in the industry and currently manages the Crux UK Core Fund. He began his career as a fund manager at Brown Shipley, and prior to this was an equity analyst at Investec and Williams Dubro with responsibility for several sectors. He joined Oriel Asset Management in 2014 to help run what is now the Crux UK Core Fund, moving to Crux Asset Management at the start of 2017. Jamie graduated with a first class degree in mathematics from the University of Hull and is a CFA charter holder. So firstly, Jamie, a warm welcome to you and thank you for sparing us some of your time. Thank you, Richard. If we could um, kick off from the top in terms of the fund itself, perhaps could you just uh, kind of talk us through the sort of objectives and the style of the fund? The objective of the fund is to try and provide equity investments for investors in a way that helps you sleep at night. So we're trying to buy a load of businesses that we think can become more valuable over time. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment, but also try and control for the risk. And we take risk as very much a qualitative uh, element rather than a quantitative element. Okay, with that in mind, what, what sort of things are you applying on, on the risk front? It's all about balance. You sort of start off with the idea that there's a lot of things I don't know and I can't control. And because I don't know certain aspects of the sort of global economy, what might happen to interest rates, what might happen to energy prices, I shouldn't try and make an active bet. At times, what you'll find is if a portfolio is done on a pure bottom-up basis, what will happen is you'll be implicitly making a specific bet on a macro outcome because you're, you're biased towards certain industries or certain businesses. So when we're thinking about the portfolio, whilst the stock selection is as important as risk management, we also try and make sure that there's a balance towards these qualitative risk factors. So for example, if you are predisposed towards sort of slightly higher quality businesses, which, which this portfolio is, you will typically be fairly short oil. That is to say, higher oil prices are a negative on, on most of the portfolio. It won't be a big negative, but ultimately oil is going to be an input. It should therefore be possible that within the constraints of the stock selection process, you can sort of build in one or two positions which offer all of the quality aspects and the value creation elements, but also are somewhat somewhat offset that inbuilt bias towards potentially lower oil prices. So businesses that have an outsized benefit from higher oil prices. So in terms of your sector allocation of the fund, what, what do you tend to find yourself drawn towards? I don't really look at what sector a stock is in, but when I look at the portfolio, it's easy to think about the things that we're sort of predisposed away from. So we don't tend to be too close to commodity type businesses. So very little in the way of basic resources, very little in the way of oil or anything like that. I don't particularly like businesses where the underlying economics could be changed by sort of a signature of a, of a government bureaucrat. So I don't really want to be in too heavily regulated or, or, or monopoly type businesses. So what that means is we tend to be talk more towards consumer goods, business services, some of the higher quality engineering type businesses. So those sorts of things. Obviously, you're, you're taking a, a longer term view, as you mentioned. How much of the rationale that you use is allied to what income? stock might be providing which obviously is something of particular interest to mm-hmm. investors at the moment given the growing dividend drought that we're in. it's not a huge consideration i don't have any income targets at all but when i'm thinking about where returns of a business can come from, you think about you're making an assessment about the management i'm trying to find businesses where the management team understands there are basically four things they can spend the excess capital on. they can spend it on dividends they can spend it on reinvesting in their in their business 
they can spend it on acquisitions, and if it makes sense, they can do share buybacks. The types of businesses we're going for tend to be slightly more capital light. So the opportunities to reinvest in, at the same levels of returns of invested capital don't tend to don't tend to fulfil the entirety of the spare capital. So you will tend to find that these businesses will pay a dividend. What that yield is will be dependent upon the policies of the of the management team, and also the sort of valuation of the underlying business. We tend not to have a yield anywhere near as high as the index, but we tend to have businesses that have a greater capital growth potential. So within your top holding of the Crutch UK core farm. What, what sort of names are we looking at there? I'm quite heavily exposed to banking stocks. I think I think that's one area where I sort of, I diverge quite a bit from the market. I think they're much better businesses than the market seems to think. These are businesses that aren't huge return on capital businesses, but they do, they should rather generate a sufficient return on capital to become more valuable over time. In any other time, I would say that they, they are, Right now, they have the ability to pay quite large dividends, which which would form a part of that return. However, because of what the uh, the FCA decided in early April, uh, they won't be t- paying dividends for the time being. I don't see that as an issue because it just means the capital is going to accrue to the balance sheet and, they, and the capital itself will become stronger in the businesses. So we've got quite a bit in banks. We also have a fairly large position in British American Tobacco, which I think is still a, a, a very good value business. Yes, there is sort of volume declines on the top line, but the price elasticity of demand is so strong in that business, owing to the fact that a large proportion of the cost of their products is effectively tax, means that they can continue to grow bottom line at probably 5 to 7% for another decade, probably beyond there. But I, th- I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable going a decade hence. If you look at something like that, you go a decade hence and you assume that the dividend goes up in line with the, the, the sort of bottom line growth. And the dividend yield of 6.8% as it is now will probably be more like 12, 13% in 10 years time based on the current share, share price. So I've got, I've got that in there. I've also got Glaxo, which has been a tremendous source of ballast in the last few months where we've had the, uh, the pretty high volatility across the market. Its size right now is as much a result of the fact that it has outperformed significantly and it was already a reasonable size position. And it's it's just become a larger position, which I haven't been trimming. So it tends to be large cap, tend to be a bit conservative, tend to be a bit boring, frankly. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. And and presumably you, you would have, by the same token, your, your favourite stock during the sector. Is it interesting that you should mention bats during a week in which we saw a 33% cut in the dividend at uh, Imperial Brands, arguably that was for slightly different reasons and as much was uh, as their, their debt situation clearly needs sorting out, they need to deleverage and they've chosen this probably at an ideal time to cut that dividend when it's pretty much par for the course. In terms of the uh, pharma sector, is, is Glaxo one that you prefer over AstraZeneca, for example? I mean, if I'm brutally honest, I should have been more pro-Astra three years ago. But that's sort of an ex post, sort of an ex post idea of what's happened in the last three years. Right now, I think Glaxo is probably more interested in Astra because there's so much good news already seems to be to me that in, in Astra's share price. Uh, Glaxo probably has a little bit too much debt and you won't see the dividends really going anywhere for a few years. However, I think once the consumer business is spun out and once the, the, the sort of the natural churn of, of debt sort of occurs over the next few years, Glaxo starts making a lot more sense from a balance sheet point of view. And they just need a few wins in the um, in the pharma book, and it you know it becomes a very interesting business. And it's certainly not expensive by any stretch of imagination, even ha- even having 
outperformed so much this year. I noticed that Standard Chartered are on your list as well. Is that something allied to the fact that the Asian region is potentially returning to some kind of economic normality? Or, or, is, or has that been a, a sort of longer term holding of yours? That's been a longer term holding of mine. I like the banking sector right now. Uh, and I have done for the last few years. I think the value and the risk there is really compelling. I don't, however, want to be overly exposed to one particular set of geographies. And I want businesses that I think are, are amongst the best run. And the nice thing about, about Standard Chartered is, 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 as you point out, is effectively an Asian bank, albeit listed here. And I think under Bill Winters, it has become a much better run business than it had been sort of in the prior five to 10 years. The fact that the Asia probably will come out of this quicker than the West is a, is a benefit. But when, you know, returning to that first point we said about um, trying to balance out risk, I'm not trying to be overly exposed. I'm not trying to take a bet on any particular risk outcome. And geography is one of those risk outcomes. So yes, whilst Standard Chartered will probably do better if Asia does emerge from this quicker than Europe, arguably something like Barclays or, or maybe Next, which is in the portfolio, will probably continue to suffer. So hopefully I'm creating balance towards risk factors. I mean, clearly you've got a number of high quality blue chips within the, within the top holdings of yours. How have you found that the fund is coping with the, uh, the current downturn? Well, but possibly not as well as I'd hoped. Uh, we outperformed quite, quite handily in the, in the, in the sort of brutal sell-off between the end of February and the end of March which I would hope this kind of portfolio would do so. However, and I, and I think this is much as anything because investors still think about the great financial crisis whenever there's a wobble. Banks, which are a big part of this portfolio, were hit very hard as well. So the fact that the rest of the portfolio held up enough meant that the, the sort of the suffering we took with the banks wasn't sufficient to, to sort of push us below the sort of market in, in terms of performance. In the recovery, you know, we haven't recovered as quickly. We are still somewhere some way ahead, but it's not a huge amount at this point. But, you know, one thing we've always taken pride in is in the history of this portfolio, and this portfolio predates me by quite a few years, there has never been a situation where the market has fallen by 10% or more and this portfolio has underperformed. And, and that it's not something we necessarily aim for, and we certainly don't guarantee, but it is something that we, we think gives sort of, quantitative evidence of the fact that we are successfully reducing the risk across the portfolio. Understood. I, I noticed there's a relatively high exposure to cash in the mm -hmm. portfolio, just under 10%. Is that a question of you keeping your powder dry for opportunities as they arise? Or is it a defensive style? So perhaps even a bit of both? It's mainly the first one, but we come at it from the opposite direction. So I don't, I don't make any calls on what I think the, the market is in terms of expensive or cheap. But I do look at a lot of businesses from a bottom-up point of view. And the way, way we look at valuations is we think a lot about the cycle rather than you know, what multiple it might happen to be on. I.e. we're more, more concerned by whether the E is sustainable in PE than yeah. whether the PE number is low enough. What we're finding at the moment, particularly following the rallies since, since the end of March, is actually the, the sort of the rewards on offer for the risks you're being asked to take across the market don't seem particularly compelling. And therefore, I'm not finding places to put the capital and, and therefore cash is, is rising, which, which effectively is the residual of this process that seeks to lower risk. If I come up with an abundance of ideas, 
then that cash position could go down to one or two percent quite quite easily. Finally, Jamie, obviously, I'm saving the simplest question until last. But what's your outlook? Certainly for the the rest of uh, 2020, maybe we need to go 18 months out before we start to get oh. any idea. <laughs> Wow. I mean, how long is a piece of string? My guess is we probably have some sort of disinflationary, possibly deflationary impulse. I think there's going to be a profound change in some businesses where there is a permanent impairment in the value. And we have to think very carefully about which ones they are and whether we're overly exposed to those sorts of risks. A further out, it really rather depends on whether the government fiscal response, and that's a global fiscal response, sort of stays in place. If it does... I think we may start returning to, we may in, in, you know, in three to five years start seeing a pickup in, in inflation, which we haven't seen probably since you know, the 70s in, in any real kind of sense. I mean, there's been, there's been blips along the way, but it's been a sort of downward trend for the last 40 years. Sure. Well, that's uh, unfortunately all we've got time for. That's been absolutely fascinating. And, and thank you again, Jamie, for your time thank you, Richard. today. And thank you for listening. And do join us again next time for the next interactive investor podcast. 